Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Brother Josh, for leading us there, and uh, Brother Harry for that wonderful uh, introduction. And it does feel a little bit like a homecoming this morning. Uh, Aaron and I, I think it's been at least five years since we've been here, though, um, so we're glad to be back. I only know about half of you, so that means you've been uh, fruitful and multiplying, spiritually speaking. So it's great to see the Lord working with you and uh, how He's been blessing this church. Well, it's my privilege this morning to open God's Word with you. And Pastor Levi asked if I could continue you in your series through 1 Timothy, which will bring us this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 6. I believe there's a lot we can learn from this epistle. And indeed, I know you have been learning a lot from it in the last five chapters. And this morning, I want to zoom in on one key aspect throughout the epistle, but especially the text we're looking at this morning, which is the pursuit of godliness. I would define godliness as living a fruitful and obedient Christian life. Living a fruitful and obedient Christian life is at the heart of godliness. Whether you are a brand new Christian, maybe you just walked through the doors for the first time this morning, well then welcome, or you've been walking with the Lord for decades, regardless, your main task at hand is the pursuit of godliness. The gospel isn't simply about getting saved, it's about being transformed. In theological terms, it's, it's justification and sanctification. Justification in the moment when you lay your, heart, lay your life at the foot of the cross. And sanctification, that process of becoming more like Christ. And that's, that's godliness. That's what we're talking about this morning. At every stage of your journey of faith, godliness is your main goal. To pursue and to look more like Christ. And there's been so much chaos going around us in the world over the past two years that I think it's time this morning for us to get back to the basics, to get back what we were called to do. And I would argue that more than just survive, it's time for us now to thrive. And I don't mean thrive in the the physical or the material sense. Uh, In fact, the text we're going to look at this morning speaks directly against that but rather I mean to thrive as to live the life that you were called to live in Christ. That's what thriving is. And that's why for Christians, godliness is to be put over this earthly gain, as our title implies. Because for the Christian, godliness is gain. It's what this whole thing called life is about. So we're going to continue in our series now at 1 Timothy chapter 6. But as you're turning there, Um, Last week, you looked at the importance of leadership and playing the long game. And this week, we're going to switch tone a little bit. And so I want to provide a transitional bridge to get us from chapter 5 into chapter 6. How do chapters 5 and 6 relate? If you look through 1 Timothy, uh, and even 2 Timothy, at every chapter, there's a different heading, as if there's another section coming, except at chapter 6. Here there's no heading, there's no change, because in fact the first two verses of chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, really could be a part of chapter 5. And so that's going to make sense, but first let's read verses 1 and 2. So this is 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 and 2. We need to read this first before we can jump into our text at verse 3. Verse 2, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. 
Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. So chapter 5 ends in the same vein as chapter 6 begins. In chapter 5, Paul was talking to Timothy about these, these family matters or the relationships within the church, widows, children, elders. And in chapter 6, he begins in the same way by talking about a different faction within the church, slaves and servants. And to this group, Paul says that though they have been um, marginalized uh, within the culture, within the church they have found equal status. And so because of that, he says that their labor brings honor to God so that the name of God will not be reviled. Even their work for a Christian brother must be done out of good service so that their work would be a benefit to their master. So that all makes sense. That's chapter 5 going into chapter 6. Same kind of tone, same kind of vein. But now we come to chapter 6, verses 3. And here is where there's a bit of a transition happening um, and it, it almost seems a bit disconnected because Paul's tone is changing. Rather than speaking to the church about family matters, it, it's now as if he's talking directly to Timothy to say, but there's one more group that you need to be on guard against, and that is the false teachers. All this family matters stuff that we were talking about last week, it won't matter much if these guys get a hold of your church. And so, pursue godliness, pursue in the way I have laid before you already, so that you are not swayed by these false teachers. Do that, and your family, your church family, won't be divided. As if to say, live in your identity in Christ, so that you are not divided. Okay, so let's read verses 3 to 10, and we're going to seek some instruction for how to guard the faith and how to grow in godliness. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we have brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We thank the Lord for his word to us this morning. So in 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is instructing his young protege, Timothy, for how to uh, work and serve as this new church leader. And like I said, you've been walking through a lot of those instructions over the past five chapters. And in chapter 6, we're met now in verse 3 with some miscellaneous instructions and adages um, to, to help further Timothy's education, if you will, in the matter. 
And so by doing that in chapter 6, Paul dives into this description of true godliness. And in it, he gives, he gives two major warnings against false teachers and against false contentment. That's why Paul said in verse 2, teach and urge these things. Because there are people there teaching and urging differently. So that's why Paul begins this text by elaborating on the nature and identity of these false teachers. Those with a craving for earthly gain. He explains that their teaching does not lead to godliness. But the teachings of Christ do. And so the question before us this morning is an important one. How do we grow in godliness? That's our question. Especially when the world is trying to pull us down into this survivalistic mindset. How do we grow? How do we thrive in our pursuit of godliness? Well, let's look a little closer into the text. Uh, We'll read verses 3 and 4. It says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now this different doctrine that Paul is talking about in this text is is truly toxic to the church. For any church, any teaching which does not accord with that of Christ will inevitably lead to her destruction. So it's either A or B. The teachings of Christ and everything else. And so our first step in growing in godliness is to choose A. It's to choose the teachings of Christ so that we can stay on course. And that's our first point. We grow in godliness by staying on course. And it's the point that Paul is making here in this text. Staying on course means not getting distracted. Not getting pulled Away, And we can be distracted in a number of ways, can't we? For some, I think the last two years have served as a bit of that distraction for them. But here Paul talks about these false teachers and look at how he characterizes them. Look at their uh, identity, how he identifies them. He says this in verses 4 and 5. He says he is puffed up with conceit. He understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in the mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Wow, what a list to describe these false teachers, this hidden faction within the church. These guys are full of empty wind and hot air. They're full of envy, which leads to anger and strong disagreements over the simplest of things. They make small things big and big things seemingly unimportant. They corrupt people's minds. Listen, gospel instruction aims at unity and love. And false teaching aims at division and discontentment, seeking to pull you away from your course. You know which one of these characteristics stuck out to me as I was reading the text was when Paul said that they are depraved in the mind and deprived of the truth. That's the essence of it. 
They've lost their sense of right and wrong. Their eyeglasses, by which they see the world, have become blurred and have obscured their vision. I know for myself, when my glasses get blurry or, or smudged with fingerprints, I sometimes think it might be better if I just take them off because they've lost their usefulness. Maybe that's why I keep missing the laundry with my dirty socks. No? Okay. I thought I was going <laughs> to... I thought I was going to save some marriages in the room. We'll go with that. But these false teachers, they've deviated from the teachings of Christ. And look at where it's gotten them. They're causing dissension and friction, disunity. They're speaking slanderously, suspiciously. They're craving controversy. They're causing a mess. And Paul warns Timothy that he needs to be on guard against such people. Like a shepherd keeping watch over his flock. Paul saying, Timothy, look out. There are wolves in sheep's clothing. And some may have already infiltrated your herd. So Paul's instructing Timothy to beware of these false teachers at Ephesus because there were indeed there people that were getting pulled off course. And that's not such a leap for us to understand today. There are still false teachers trying to pull people away from the faith. To pull people away from their pursuit of godliness. They're still trying to distract from the gospel truth. If you want to avoid letting false teachers get a hold of your life and getting a hold of this church, then you need to collectively pursue Christ. That's why we sang, build my life Build everything that we are, our whole identity on who Christ is. And that will guard against false teachers. That will help stay on course. That's your focus, right? Christ is your, your north star, like the sailors used to use to gain direction. He's your north star, keeping you on course, keeping you on trajectory. And all the other stars in the sky, beautiful as they may be, are like the false teachers, trying to divert your trajectory, even just a little bit, but trying to pull you off course. That's why Paul ends his letter, which you'll get to in maybe a week or so, he ends with saying this, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions, which is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Those are his final words to Timothy in this letter. He's saying, don't cling to this world Cling to the cross. When uh, I was doing my studies over in Ireland, um, that's part of the reason we've been gone for so long, uh, I was doing some studies there at Queens, and I discovered the writings of this 17th century um, Baptist figure. Uh, his name's Benjamin Keach, and he wrote an allegory, which I think kind of helps best describe this idea of godliness. How many of you are aware of John Bunyan's allegory, Pilgrim's Progress? Oh yeah, that's great. This is uh, much the same as Keech's allegory. So it's about the story of a character named True Godliness, and it's his journey of faith home. And this is a great story to, to read with your kids around the devotional table, a great story that helps illustrate a lot of the principles in the Christian life. And I got this copy because I wanted to make sure you could actually get it. Amazon, $5. So it's in print still, um, but it's just a great story which illustrates... Uh, this point we're making today because in one scene, true godliness, let me just find that spot. Here we go. True godliness is talking to another character, and this character's name is Riches. 
And of riches, riches asks, Do you think that I should give entertainment to you and lose all my great honor and credit amongst men? But godliness rightly replies, Is not that honor that comes from God better than all the vain honor poor mortals can give you? Some rich and noble men have for my sake denied themselves all the glory of this world and accounted the reproaches of Christ greater riches than earthly honors and the pleasures of sin, which are for but a season. Wow. That is true godliness. True godliness has forsaken all the things of this world for Christ. No motives, no goals, no desires other than this. To know Christ and to make Him known. Christ Himself sought the Father's will, even when He was here on earth. He didn't seek His own kingdom. He didn't try to build up something that would last in a physical sense. He didn't. He forsook everything, even taking on the form of a man. He became a son of man so that we might become sons of God. He became a son of man so that we might become children of the living God. That's what Christ did. So if the Heavenly Father is your Father, then look like Him by reflecting the Son. Your greatest gain in life will be to live in the conformity of the image towards Christ, who is the Son. To look like your Father, it reminds me of... Um, there was a, a guy at the church we went to in Belfast when we were living in Ireland, and he had a limp. Um, he was in an accident, and unfortunately the mother wasn't in the picture at this time, so he just had this little son, and this little son was learning to walk, and the little son actually started to walk with a limp. He started to walk just like his father, so he actually had to go through physical therapy and training to unlearn looking like the father. That's how close and intimate our relationship with the Father should be if we're going to stay on course. And secondly, we need to resolve to be content. That's our next point here this morning. And it's a hard one, admittedly so. This world is, is full of perpetual discontentment. But look at verses 6-8 through eight with me again. It says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Here Paul is giving Timothy a, a formula, if you were, for life and for ministry. The formula is godliness plus contentment equals great gain. I think there might be a slide. Yeah, excellent. Godliness and contentment equals great gain. Not power plus wealth. Not influence plus popularity. All those things are going to pass away. But godliness paired with contentment results in great gain. In the Greek, it reads, godliness in company with contentment is now great gain. I like that imagery. In company with together. I would explain it this way. Godliness is a reflection of God's character on us, while contentment reflects our character. So godliness is what, what people look and they see, they see God through us. That's how we are reflecting God. That's our godliness. But contentment, it's like that window into your house. When people walk by and they look through, they're looking through the window of contentment to see how godliness in your life 
looks, to see how seriously you are taking godliness. It's a reflection of your character. Paul explains it similarly in the following verse, in verse 7, where he says, we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. That's the perspective he puts on it. Here he's drawing from a widely cited principle from antiquity. You may have um, remembered uh, to the book of Job when Job said something similar. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So it's that idea of temporal versus eternal. Even if someone were to gain the greatest riches in this life, their gain would be short-lived because there are no U-Hauls behind hearses. There's no hitches on a hearse. What's behind it? It's the family that's left behind. So think about it this way. Your birth and your death provide the vantage points by which you can look down to appraise the material things of this life to see what is truly necessary. And it's not a new idea for Paul. You talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago in chapter 4 when Paul wrote, have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, this doesn't mean we don't need to go to the gym anymore. That's not our takeaway this morning. But there's a clear contrast between the physical and the eternal. Godliness is of eternal value, so pursue it. Live with contentment. Desire it. Make it your main goal. You aren't going to covet your neighbor's things if you are content with yours. And you're not going to covet the things of this world if you are content with your God. So being content in Christ becomes central. And it wasn't just hard or an issue for the church at Ephesus. Paul even breaks this down a little bit more when he's writing to the church in Philippi. Philippians 4 He says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, for I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mentioned a moment ago that this this, um, contentment, living with contentment, is a high calling. It's a hard task. Because we can be brought into the valley so easily. When we lose a loved one, when we lose a job, when we experience something that causes us to suffer, or even when we see someone else suffer and we take it on ourselves, it brings us into the valley. And if your contentment is based on your circumstances, then it's going to falter. It's going to go to and fro. So we have to place our contentment not on our circumstances, not on the things that we have, not on our gain, but on our God. He will provide you with daily contentment. So now practically, pursuing contentment requires daily prayer. Contentment and prayer have to go together, don't they? In fact, prayer is to godliness what the heart is to the body. 
Just like how the heart pumps blood to provide life-sustaining measures for the body, so too does prayer embody our pursuit of godliness. It sets our pursuit of godliness on fire. And so when we're caught in the valley, prayer is our first response and not our last resort. Prayer is our first response because it again realigns us with the will of the Father, which leads to being content in whatever situation I am in, which Paul said. So we need to stay the course. We need to pursue contentment. And finally, we need to realize that growing in godliness means we have to focus on eternal things. That's verses 9 and 10. I mean, if you want to talk about something that can hinder your pursuit of godliness, here's one. Paul gives it to us in these verses. It's a great example of something that can hinder our pursuit of godliness. And it's something we need to have an honest discussion about this morning. And that's money. The Apostle Paul warns in this text, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. What a sobering thought. Yeah, I almost want to say, if that's you, then you can have all of my money. I'd rather have you as a brother or sister in Christ than any amount in my bank account. But it doesn't work that way, does it? You can't buy your salvation with money. And you certainly can't buy someone else's. But praise be to God that Christ can, and He did, on the cross, purchase for salvation, not by money, but by the blood of the Lamb. Through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, salvation has been purchased once for all. You know, it's almost alarming how much Jesus talked about money in the Scriptures. Did you know that He talks about money more than He talks about faith? and prayer combined. There's over 2,300 references to money and these material things in the Scripture. And our text this morning says that money is the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so we need to address that. We need to stop and ask why. Well, I would put before you this morning that money is Satan's currency of choice. Pardon the pun. Money is Satan's currency of choice because it has attached to it an innate sense of value. And when we struggle to understand our own value or even what our values are and how they define us, we put our, our identity into something that is easily identifiable, something that is tangible. But the problem is, as soon as we put our identity in something like money, it begins to own us. The text calls it a snare. It takes ownership of us because we've given it our value. So what is your relationship this morning to money? We undoubtedly have some savers and some spenders in the room. And they're often married to each other, providentially. So I bet money affects your marriage, affects relationships. Even if you have very little of it. It can still be something that leaves you either content or left wanting. Because constantly noticing your lack isn't being content 
either. You may notice a nice car in the church parking lot, and that's fine, but complaining about it to your spouse all the way home, how you don't have it, that's the problem. That's where you get caught in this snare. Here's the principle. For where your treasure is, finish this with me, there your heart will be also. How we use our money, I say our money as if it's ours and not God's, but how we use our money tells the truth about who we are and whose we are. It's like how we talked about contentment revealing the heart. And so true godliness must never be commercialized. You know, and I pray that it never comes to, to this church, to your pastor. And, and he's, he's a great guy, so I, I am very confident in that. But true godliness is a matter of the heart, not the pocket. So let's take a step back from talking about... Um, Money, this text isn't an attack on money. Uh, Actually, what Paul's getting at is that it's the craving of such things, like money, which will lead to apostasy, evil, ruin, destruction. Money is simply the means to the end. But the hard truth is that we can turn anything into an idol, can't we? It's something of the human condition. Money is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to things that we need to be on guard against and against our desire for them. So this morning we need to identify, we need to address, we need to deal with our idols. You can't be idle about your idols. You can put that on a bumper sticker. You can't be idle about your idols. It's not about the size of your bank account. It's about how often you check it. That's what's consuming. That's what will 100% affect your worship, and particularly your giving. The root issue is the love for the money. So how do we combat that in a culture which glorifies it? How do we stand up against this idea of not being rooted, not having our value attached to money in a culture which that is the, the baseline? Well, brothers and sisters, we have to be set apart. I mentioned earlier this this little book by Benjamin Keach, this allegory, Travels of True Godliness. There's another scene in which true godliness is talking with a character named covetousness. And he says this, he says, He, covetousness, hath also grievously corrupted many who profess kindness to me by encumbering their minds so with the affairs of this life that they cannot find the way to the church. When they should be hearing God's word, he forces them to abide in their shops. Nor will he suffer many of them to take a little time to pray in their families, nor in their closets. You see, covetousness succeeded in robbing people, not just of their possessions, but of their identity. It wasn't just what they had, it was who they were that he took from them. And that's what this text is is warning us about. Covetousness is a bottomless pit. Covetousness is the opposite to contentment. You can't be one and the other simultaneously. Covetousness is a pit which the world finds refuge in. And we know that we aren't supposed to look like the world, right? In fact, uh, as Christians... We're not supposed to look like the world at all. Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be conformed to the image of Christ. That verse kind of summarizes our whole text for this morning. It's a a black and white. It's an us 
living in our identity in a world that's chasing after everything except Christ. When the church uh, looks like the culture, then it's, it's failed in its job to change it. When the church looks like the culture, it's failed at its job to be the salt, to be the light in the darkness. And we've been set apart to pursue godliness. The world isn't doing that. They're pursuing themselves. Riches, power, influence, their feelings or desires. That's what they're pursuing. But we are called to pursue Christ. When we stop pursuing Christ, we begin to reflect the culture. And don't take my word for it. I, uh, I like this J.C. Ryle quote. He says this. He says, There is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have and think they have enough. A cheap Christianity which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice. Which costs nothing and is worth nothing. Now he says back um, in, in this quote, he says, in this day. But he actually wrote that back in the 1800s. But it sure is true today. If we aren't set apart, if we aren't holy because He is holy, we'll become like the ones we're called to save with the Gospel. And let's not give the world a cheap and ultimately useless form of Christianity along the way. One that's void of conviction. Let's show them godliness and give them Christ. That's why we have to declare, yes, I will. Through it all, I will glorify the name of God. And so as I said off the top, it's time for us as a church to get past surviving and to start thriving again in our identity in Christ by gaining in Christ, as Paul says in this text. We need to refocus our vision this morning to see that godliness is gain for the Christian. And with that proper understanding of gain, we can realize that we weren't made to simply survive. We were called to so much more. To thrive as children of God pursuing godliness. To thrive in our identity as a church family. And so let's pray and ask God to help us do just that. Heavenly Father, we thank You for your word and for how it sharpens us and how it conforms us from one degree to the next to the image of Christ. And I pray that this morning that some have been challenged in their pursuit of godliness. Some have been encouraged in their pursuit of godliness. And others have just been reminded that this is what it's all about. This is what I need to be doing from Monday to Saturday. This is my main task at hand. I want to pursue Christ in and through everything. So Lord, we need Your help to do that by Your Holy Spirit. Would You help us to pursue Christ? Would You help us to show Christ to this world so that we would not look like it, but that we could be better positioned to love it and to serve it as we reflect Christ? We need Your help in that, God. Bless these people, I pray, now as well as they do that. And I give them the strength and courage to show Christ this week to their families and friends, to their loved ones, their community where they're working. I pray that in all these places, they would be the light of Christ, tangibly evident and a witness to Him. In Christ's name, amen.